0: Well, uh, thank you, Pastor Henry, and it's uh, great to be with you. I've had uh, such a wonderful time this morning. I already find myself thinking I hope I get invited back. So uh, it's been wonderful. You folks have been very, very kind in receiving me. appreciate your kind remarks, and uh, many of you we got to interact with after the Sunday school hour, and it's great uh, being here. Uh, appreciate Brother Henry inviting me. Uh, As I got acquainted with uh, your pastor, I've learned that uh, a number of people... I guess these men have Bibles. If you want a Bible, raise your hand and they'll... uh... There we go. Uh, We have some friends in common that I wanted to to mention. I know some of you have been influenced or are going to be influenced by the ministry of Pastor John Street, who's a professor of biblical counseling at the the Master's College. And uh, John and I uh, graduated from the same high school. I had the privilege of growing up in southeastern Ohio down in a very rural area uh, in the foothills of Appalachia, right near where the Garden of Eden used to be. And, uh, and uh, John's uh, dad was my pastor uh, for a few years, and uh, John played uh, football with my uh, brother in, in high school. And uh, it's interesting, from that small rural church, our, our little town was the county seat, and our town had a population of 2,000. So, uh, for you folks living surrounded by people the way you are here, you can't imagine something like that. I uh, probably, but uh, from that small little church that used to run between seventy-five and one hundred twenty-five in morning worship, uh, came two men who've become leaders in the biblical counseling movement around the world. So uh, God does amazing things, doesn't He? And then also, you're friends with, uh, you're acquainted with uh, Dr. Stuart Scott. I think he's going to be teaching at the NCT this coming weekend. And uh, he's a tremendous brother, good friend, and one of my few claims to fame is that Cindy and I knew Stuart before he was ever married, and uh, at one point I hired him to be my assistant pastor when I was uh, serving in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and I've got a mug when when our church celebrated our 25th anniversary, and we had uh, special mugs to celebrate that, and it says Westridge Baptist Church, 25th anniversary, Randy Patton, senior pastor, Stuart Scott, assistant pastor, So uh, one of my few uh, claims to fame. And uh, and then uh, many of you have benefited from the wonderful ministry of North Creek Church and the counseling training. Steve Mahorder heads up their counseling ministry, and he's been a good friend, and I'm so thankful for his kind invitation that gave me the excuse to come to uh, the San Francisco area, and Brother Henry for inviting me to speak uh, with you today. Well, if you'll find your notes, uh, I'm speaking today on the subject of uh, Hope and Help for Parents discipleship in the home. I'm convinced that the greatest joys you will ever experience in life are somehow going to be related to your children or your grandchildren. In the same way, most of us will go to our graves saying some of the greatest pain we've ever experienced in life involved our children or our grandchildren. Many of you as adults would say some of the greatest pain I've experienced in life has been related to my parents or my parent-child relationships. Regardless of where you are in life right now, we would all be wise to pay attention to parent-child relationships and to understand what the Word of God has to say in this very, very strategic area. I'll tell you at the beginning that in my mind, I'm trying to benefit today and be of help to four different groups of people. First, I'm hoping all of you who are currently parenting will find some tools being put in your parenting toolbox that will help you with this very, very important duty. Second, I'm uh, hoping that to influence grandparents. Uh, many of you, like Cindy and me, are at that happy stage of life. And uh, grandparents can play a very strategic role in accomplishing a biblical philosophy of parenting. And I hope, as grandparents, that the, how you might relate to your grandchildren will become into even sharper focus. And then a number of you are involved in children's ministries or youth ministries. And my desire is that through your understanding of the scriptures we're talking about today, you'll understand in a more precise way how you can come alongside parents that are trying to raise their children in a biblical way and how you can help them in a more strategic, significant way. And then finally, uh, I um, understand from talking to some of you that there's a number of people here that uh, are either not married or you're married but uh, not, uh, do not have children and um, I'm hoping that those of you who do not, uh, are not yet parents would find this message to be hope-giving. I've met some individuals who've told me the home I grew up in was an absolute disaster. I've had individuals tell me I don't know hardly anybody that has a happy home or has a, a childhood that's been a whole lot better than mine. And therefore, I don't think I'm going to ever seek to be a parent. And I'm hoping that if any of you are thinking like that, that you'll find your thinking changed in the, next, uh, in the next 50 minutes. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians and find chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Right. Verse 4 is going to be our text for today. And uh, the outline for my message comes from this particular passage. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. By the way, how many of you were raised in a Christian home? All right, well, look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. This is probably the very first verse you ever memorized in the Bible. Uh, it says, uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I mean, your parents probably had you memorizing that verse before they had you memorizing John 3:16. Uh, it's a good verse, but that's not our text for today. Drop down to verse 4. Here's where we're going to park and meditate today. A very strategic verse. In my opinion, this is the single most helpful verse in the New Testament on the subject of parenting. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. There are five key phrases in that verse that God wants to use to guide how you think about parenting. Please pay careful attention to them. The first phrase is, deals with the goal. God says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Bring them up. This is a very precise Greek term, which means to nourish up, or to nourish up to maturity, or to train up. The way this verb is put together, it communicates several truths. One truth is that children by themselves do not grow up to be what God wants them to be. Children by themselves, oops, Excuse me here. <clears throat> well, I'm going from bad to worse here, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Let me find the hole. Right there. All right. I think we got it. I just needed to see it clear. I promise not to touch it again during the rest of the service, all right? Great. Nice round of applause for John, who bailed me out. All right, thank you. Okay, we were talking about the Bible, weren't we? All right, okay, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. There's five key phrases. The first one is, we're focused on, the scripture says, bring them up. And it means to nourish up to maturity. It's helping us to understand that in biblical terminology, there's a difference between a child growing up and being brought up. Think about it this way. If you give a child food, clothing, water, shelter, and time, they will grow up. That's not the word that's used here. It's being brought up. It involves food, clothing, water, shelter, and time. But it involves so much more as we're going to see. In fact, the scripture makes clear that children by themselves do not grow up to be what God wants them to be. For example, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And Proverbs 29, 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but look at this, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Sometimes when I'm reading some of the news and reading about what... Uh, young people are doing back where we live in indiana i find myself thinking those were children that just grew up they weren't brought up because of the way that they they are acting children by themselves do not grow up to be what god wants them to be the goal that's described in this word it means to lead our children to love christ to obey his word and to function as independent adults who think and act biblically or to put simply, is the goal of parenting, when God says bring them up, he's saying to us we're to seek to lead our children to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to bring them up. Let's, uh, let's do it this way. Uh, <clears throat> see if I can touch something here without creating a disaster. All right, let's say that this is the point where a child is born. We're going to start a continuum. we we'll gonna start here. We're going to finish over there. Let's say that you're at the hospital and a a child has just been born. You're holding this precious uh, infant in your hand. I want you to think about what do you have when you're holding a brand new baby? Well, depending on your circumstances in life, you may say hope realized, or you may say a wonderful new addition to our family, or you may say lots of bills, uh, and all those things could be accurate. What I want you to think about is this. When you're holding a brand new uh, infant, you have a life that is precious in God's sight. And this precious little baby, the scripture teaches us, is a sinner by nature. And it won't take very long until they start showing you they're a sinner by choice too. And at this point in time, this child is totally self-centered. And is totally dependent upon other people to get along in life. I mean, they can breathe their own air, pump their own blood, but apart from that, they have to be fed, have to be burped, have to be changed, have to be turned over, have to be transported. Uh, I mean, they're totally dependent upon other people. Now, watch this. One way of thinking about the goal of parenting, to bring them up, this is what it means. It means to take a totally self-centered, totally dependent individual who's a sinner by nature, pretty soon going to demonstrate they're a sinner by choice, and by God's grace you consistently keep pointing them toward Christ and a life of biblical obedience through the work of the spirit of God ministering in their life convicting them through the preaching teaching of the word and so forth they trust Christ as their savior and they grow in their faith and the goal is that by the time you hit the ages of 18 to 22 which is what it takes in our culture most kids leave home between the ages of 18 and 22 by God's grace this child will come to a point where they're a strong disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and they love, with all, they love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their spirit. And because they love God, the first great commandments, they have a love for other people. They're no longer self-centered. They're focused on ministering to other people. And because they love God, Jesus says, those who love me keep my commandments. That means they're going to keep his commandments and go out into the world and seek to be gainfully employed or carry out their responsibilities so that they can care not just for themselves and their own needs, but they're going to be able to have enough that they can give to minister to others. And you got 18 years to get it done. That is a huge job. For which we need God's help. But here's the good news. Biblical parenting is basically disciple-making. And all those verses that you've heard people talk about who are missionaries and are going around the world to take the gospel, the scriptures that give them hope and encourage them with that, are the same verses that ought to encourage you as parents. For example, one of the great commission passages teaches that, you know, Christ said, go into all the world and make disciples. And then that passage finishes by saying, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And to those of you that are parenting today, and particularly to some of you who right now have children that are giving you a run for your money and frustrating the fire out of you, listen, take hope in that. If you are seeking to make a disciple of Jesus Christ from your children, God's promise to you is, Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Thinking about this matter of disciple-making in our home, you know, have you considered the fact that non-believers are first attracted to a Christian and then to Christ? That's the way it goes. People are attracted first to a Christian to get to know more about their, why are you, why are you so different from other people? And then they're attracted to Christ. In light of that, I would say to those of you that are parents, I would ask you this question, is your brand of Christianity attractive? Would your children be attracted to Christ by your brand of Christianity that you practice in the home? I'd also say to those of you that are Uh, Teenagers and young adults, particularly, some of whom may have grown up in homes where your parents professed faith in Christ, but there was such an inconsistency between the public profession and the way they acted at home. I would say to those of you, do not let your parents' failures blind you to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ways. The goal of parenting is to bring them up, disciple making. Well, that's a big, huge challenge. How do you do that? Well, thankfully, the scriptures haven't left us to guess. God tells us in Ephesians 6, 4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. How? In the discipline of the Lord. This is the Greek word paideia. And paideia refers to the upbringing, the training, the instruction of a child primarily by act, primarily by discipline, primarily by correction. way one of my friends back in Indiana used to describe it. He says, paideia refers to teaching with some kick in it. Uh, it's, It's primarily training by act. What it means is to provide boundaries for a child and then penalties for going beyond the boundaries. When the Bible says, bring a child up in the discipline of the Lord, it means you provide boundaries, restrictions, and then penalties for going beyond those. So let me just try to, to illustrate this. If we're down here in the early stages of a child uh, growing up, and a child has learned how to crawl, uh, in our experience, and other parents tell me it was the same with them, when a child begins crawling, one of the things that's going to catch their attention sooner rather than later is a rectangle on the wall, frequently called an outlet. An outlet. And uh, many children will see that. And I can remember our child, Jimmy, our first child, Jim. Now, back then it was Jimmy. Uh, he would see that. And I remember one time, he starts crawling toward that. And I see what's happening. And I said to him, Jimmy, no. Well, he stopped, looked back at me, looked back at the outlet, and starts going toward the outlet. <laughs> All right? When he put his little hand up to touch the outlet, I slapped his hand. That's paideia. Providing boundaries, no, don't do that. And then a physical response. Something happens physically when they go beyond the boundaries. And that, can, that principle about something being given restrictions and then penalties for not living within restrictions is important. The reason this is such an important concept is because the goal of paideia, the discipline of the Lord, is character development and equipping for life in a world full of boundaries. In other words, you know, when a child is young, there's just, you know, in their early years, two, three, four, there's just, just a few boundaries. But the older you get, the more boundaries there are, because the older you get, the more people there are that are telling you what to do, what not to do, and putting boundaries on your life. And a young child who hasn't learned to live happily within the boundaries that dad and mom are providing, or grandma and grandpa may be providing, if they don't learn to live happily within those boundaries, they're gonna have a tough time when they go to school. Because then there's a teacher, teacher's aid, other people putting boundaries on them. Later there's gonna be a coach, later there's gonna be employers and so forth. And children who do not learn to, and adults who do not learn to live happily within boundaries that somebody else has put on them, are ill-prepared for the rest of life because all of life is filled with people putting boundaries on you and saying, do this, don't do that, and so forth. And if you haven't learned to live happily with other people putting boundaries on you, you're not prepared for the rest of life. In fact, I'll just tell you, you know how bad it is? You can be a born-again Christian, a responsible adult working faithfully at your job, you can be a member of a fine Bible-believing church and everything, and you can go to worship service like this. They're going to tell you what time to show up, and they're going to tell you when to stand, and they're going to tell you when to sit down, and in a little bit, we're going to tell you when you can go. <laughs> I mean, the point is all of life is filled with people putting boundaries on us. Uh, <clears throat> over the years, I've done a few thousand hours of biblical counseling, and Uh, The biggest chunk's been husband-wife relationship, marital relationship. The second biggest chunk has been on parent-child relationship. And uh, years ago, I was working with this one family who came in for counseling on parent-child issues because they had a teenager, teenage son, whose heart was filled with rebellion at home, but it was also showing up at school. He'd been involved in some fighting. He'd been suspended from the school, and the school demanded that the family get into counseling before the the son could be re-enrolled. And they uh, came to the counseling center where I was working on Mondays. And uh, they happened to be assigned to me. So I went down to to get them in the waiting room. And the parents are sitting there with the the boy. And it was obvious. Just look, he did not want to be there. Because he had his baseball hat around. He had the bill pulled down so far you couldn't hardly even see his mouth. And he shuffled into the counseling room and sat between the parents and as I'm getting to know the parents and gathering information about their circumstances and all that happened, whenever they would mention something about him or so, I would stop. and Just for a name, I'll call him Bill. I'd say, Bill, is that the way it was at your house? Is that what mom and dad say? Is that right? And I kept trying to engage him and get him involved. And as I got to know more about the family, and then as the parents started talking about Bill particularly... And the recent challenges with him and the discord he's calling in the home, causing in the home and the disrespect and so forth. And then we get to talking about what's happening at school. I mean, I can see him just sitting in his seat. He's just twitching. And, and I notice he keeps putting his head down and taking his thumb and hitting the bill on his cap. And slowly but surely, the bill on that baseball hat starts coming up. So I can see his mouth and I can see his nose, finally get to see his eyes. And uh, the parents are talking about something that just happened and how they'd dealt with him and all of a sudden he just explodes and in sinful anger and with unacceptable speech and disrespect he turns to his parents and says well I'm 16 and a half and I've checked it out in Indiana I can leave home when I'm 18 and you can't stop me and I've already talked to Sam he's Uh, out in Denver and he says I can go out and his parents says I can live with them and his uncle's going to get me a job out there and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to spend my money any way I want to I'm going to buy a car, drive anywhere I want to you're not going to tell me what time to come in and you're going to quit running my life and because in in 18 months I'm going to be free and he just exploded and when he got done with his little speech there's this unsettled quiet and God had to have helped me because the first words out of my mouth was, I said, you know what, Bill? If I, was God, if I was king, I'd just fix it so you could start doing that tomorrow. He looked at me kind of surprised. In fact, the parents looked at me kind of surprised. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, based on all that I'm hearing, um, kind of sounds to me like probably, probably be a good thing for you to get a job. And I said, Denver, I've been there a few times, man, that's a wonderful place. I'm sure it'd be a nice place to live. Um, and get in a car, I said, man, I, I remember when I got my driver's license and then got my first car, man, that was a big deal for, for a guy. I said, I can understand a lot of that. But I said, you know, my concern is that when you do everything you just said, it's not going to be the way you think it's going to be. And I said, here's what I mean. I said, you can go to Denver and you can get a job, but you know what's going to happen? You're going to interview and somebody's going to hire you and they're going to tell you what time to show up. And they're going to tell you when you can have a break. And they're going to tell you how long the break's going to be. And they're going to tell you when you can eat lunch and when lunch is over. And they're going to tell you when you can go home. And they're going to tell you how much they're going to th- pay you. They won't even ask. They're just going to tell you. But, you know, your first job, you're excited about that and everything. And you know how much you're making per hour. And they're giving you some overtime. And so you're doing the math time and a half on the overtime. And and you're thinking about how much money you're going to have when that first paycheck comes. And, uh, you know, after the second week, you get your your paycheck. And, man, you rip open that envelope. You're so excited. But when you look at that first paycheck, you're going to be in for a surprise. Because while you're thinking about getting started in life, Uncle Sam's thinking about you retiring. (laughs) And without even asking, they're going to take 7.65% right off the top. And then there's going to be federal taxes and state taxes and maybe city taxes. So you're going to have to work a lot more to get the money you think you're going to need. And then when you buy that car, the state of Colorado is going to tell you how much sales tax you're going to pay. And then they're going to tell you which side of the road you can drive on. They're going to tell you how fast you can drive. And they're going to tell you how much you pay if you don't drive as fast as they tell you to. (laughs) And I said to him... I predict that six months after you've done everything you just said you can't wait to do, you're going to look back and say living with dad and mom was pretty tame. you know why? Because the older we get, there's not fewer people telling us what to do. There's more people. And here's the part. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've got to learn to live within his boundaries because he's a God who tells us do this and don't do this. That's why this is such an important part and a child who does not learn to live happily within the boundaries that dad and mom give is ill prepared for life but they're ill prepared to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me have you take your Bible one more time and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see how big an issue this is with God and how the fact that The scriptures are clear that this is how God deals with you and me. He's the perfect heavenly father. I want you to notice from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11, that God uses this kind of training with his own children. In my Bible, uh, I've underlined every occurrence of the word discipline in this paragraph. In Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11 Nine times in seven verses, the word discipline appears. It's obvious that this is what he's talking about. So let's read this Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed good... uh, As seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Uh, Let me, uh, if if I could, let me have your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to quote that last verse too. Hebrews 12 verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And everybody said, Amen. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Just as a parent has to discipline at a point in time, we don't We're not moment-oriented. We're goal-oriented. We want to discipline whenever it's necessary in a way that, in effect, will help that child to take one more step toward becoming a lifelong disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. God disciplines us. Our perfect Heavenly Father disciplines us as needed at a point in time. Yeah, it has to take place at a point in time, but God's discipline is not moment-oriented. It's goal-oriented. He disciplines us for our good in the future. And so should we. Key strategy number one, in the discipline of the Lord. But notice, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says that that's not the only strategy. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Th- this is the Greek word, from which we get count, or the word that's sometimes used to describe biblical counseling. This refers to the training And the instruction of a child primarily by word. The discipline refers to training primarily by act. The instruction of the Lord refers to training primarily by word. But this is a very precise word. And there's three key elements in this kind of instruction. When the Bible says, fathers, bring your child up in the instruction of the Lord. It means much, much more than just making sure your your children uh, understand some Bible stories. There are three key elements to this kind of instruction. It means, first of all, that you discern thinking and behavior that God wants to change. You use God's word to change the thinking and behavior. And you do this for the child's benefit and for the glory of God. Three key elements to this kind of instruction. Discerning thinking and behavior is not biblical. Using God's word to change the thinking and behavior. And you do it for the child's benefit and for the the glory of God. So while learning Bible stories and Bible facts is important, we're not just learning facts for the sake of facts. We're wanting to help the child learn to think and discern and act according to Scripture. The goals of bringing a child up in the instruction of the Lord, the goals are character development and equipping the child to think and act biblically on his own. That is to develop spiritual convictions. So think about it this way. If we're down here in the early phases of raising a child, we have younger children. If you have younger children, as a parent, you can pretty well control who influences them. I mean, you can control where they go, who watches over them, and so forth. But the challenge is, the older a child gets, the less control you have. For example, if you have a four-year-old, I mean, you can pretty well dominate who influences that child. But just add ten When you've got a (laughs) 14-year-old, you can control part of it. You can't control all of it. And many parents are surprised to find the number of people that are influencing their children in a negative way. They they had no idea. The point is, the older a child gets, the more important it is that that child just doesn't know Bible stories, but that the child has developed what what I'm calling personal convictions. That is, they've come to believe and treasure and hold to certain biblical principles, certain biblical boundaries, so that the child will choose to think and act biblically, even when dad and mom aren't there, or grandma and grandpa aren't there, to make him do that. They will choose to do that. And the older a child gets, the more important it is that parents help the child develop personal convictions. That's where discerning, thinking behavior comes into play back here, And when you see thinking behavior that's not biblical, you use the scriptures. You don't just talk about the Bible, but you use the Bible to help the child understand. Here's God's ways. Here's what God wants us to do. Here's how he wants us to think. Here's how he wants us to act, how he wants us to respond. And you do that for the child's benefit, but also for the glory of God. And the goal is that the older the child gets, they're coming to have biblical convictions that will carry them forward in a good way. Now, in um, your notes... Uh, there's a a list of 10 scriptural convictions that children need to be taught. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to think with me now. I want you to pretend that you're down here at this point in the the parenting process and pretend that you're standing on the front porch or out in the front yard and you're waving goodbye as your child leaves the home nest. Maybe they're joining the military. Uh, Maybe they're moving to Denver to live with a, a... A friend or something, maybe they're getting married, maybe they're going off to college or something, but I want you to think as a parent, you're standing on the front porch and in effect, you're saying goodbye as your child leaves. And I want you to think, what would be in your heart, what would be your emotional stance if as you're waving goodbye, you were convinced that these 10 things I'm going to read you were in your child's heart? Okay, I'm going to ask for a response in just a minute. All right, here are 10 scriptural convictions I would suggest that children need to be taught. The Bible is the inspired word of God and the final authority for my life. My purpose in life is to seek God with my whole heart and to build my goals around his priorities. My body is the living temple of God and must not be defiled by the lust of the flesh. My church must teach the foundational truths of scripture and reinforce my basic convictions. My children and my grandchildren belong to God And it is my responsibility to teach them scriptural principles, godly character, and basic convictions. My activities must never weaken the scriptural convictions of another Christian. Marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and my marriage will be a lifelong commitment to God and to my marriage partner. My money is a trust from God and must be earned and managed according to scriptural principles. My words must be in harmony with Scripture, especially when reproving and restoring a Christian brother. And my affections must be set on things above, not on things of the earth. So, parents, or thinking about being parents at this point, you're out front waving goodbye as the child leaves, but you're convinced that the ten I just read you are in their heart and are personal convictions. What would be your emotional stance? What would you be thinking or feeling at that time? Tell me. Let me hear from three or four of you. Tell me. Joy? Peace? Peace. Shame to let him go. go. All right. Somebody else? Praising God. Say it again. Praising God. Praising God. Yeah. All positive responses. Folks, here's what I want you to think about. There's only 10. (laughs) I mean, there's only 10. And when most parents think about this, they thought, you know, if my child leaving home had those in there, my heart would be filled with such hope and optimism and encouragement. And so many of us would be waving goodbye to our child and we'd be thinking, honey, you are so much better off at this point than I was at that point. And what I want to say to those of you that are parents and those of you that are grandparents who can influence your grandchildren, there's only 10 you can teach this. Let, let, let me give you a couple of ideas. What uh, some people have found helpful is to take, uh, like, like point A, the Bible is an inspired word of God and a final authority for my life, and they say, okay, look, we're, we're coming toward the end of August. We're going to study up uh, on, on, this, um, on this doctrine. And beginning in September, uh, our family for the, our theme for the month of September is the Bible is the final authority for our life And it's the inspired Word of God. We're going to study that. We're going to talk about it. We're going to look for opportunities to build that and massage that into our kids. And then in October, we're going to talk about point B. My purpose in life is to seek God with my whole heart and so forth. And you're going to give a month's attention to that, each of those. By the way, think about this. Let's say that you're a parent and you've got a 12-year-old at your home. By the way, if you have a 12-year-old, you better get with it. The clock is ticking. You're two-thirds done. But let's say you had a 12-year-old and you started doing this right now. By the time your child leaves home, they would have been through this entire list. They would have been through it uh, about eight, eight and a half times. What a wonderful heritage. Some of you say, well, I, I couldn't do that. I mean, after a couple of weeks, I'd be just repeating myself and everything. Well, why don't you take a point A and say, okay, from September 1 to September 15, this is what we're going to focus on at our house. We're talking about with the kids looking for opportunities to work this into their life. And then on September 16, we're going to go to point B. And then October 1, we're going to go to point C. And on October 16, we're going to go to point D. And give it two weeks. The point is, parents say they want to have their children who will choose to do what's right. Even when their friends are choosing to do what's wrong, they're going to choose to do what's right when the the flow of society is pushing them to do what's wrong. And it means... Developing personal convictions. Bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. By the way, for those of you that are uh, raising uh, younger children particularly, here's a wonderful book I would uh, encourage you to pick up or order. It's called Sticky Situations uh, by Betsy Schmidt. And uh, the subtitle is 365 Devotions for Kids and Their Families. And um, you open up to any page and there'll be two or three paragraphs Taking about a third or so of the, of the page, describing a sticky situation that a child might find themselves in. And then underneath that will be two or three questions to help you ask the child to think through that sticky situation and how they should respond and so forth. And then at the bottom, there's a list of scriptures that relate and that you might find helpful. And, and this is a book that's designed to teach children how to think Christianly and can be very, very helpful. Well, let's move on. I said there's uh, five key phrases. Let's move on to the next one. Let's talk about the one who's most responsible. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 starts by saying, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The Word of God teaches that children are primarily dad's responsibility. Children are primarily dad's responsibility. The headship of the husband is a key Bible doctrine. For example, in Ephesians five twenty three, the Scripture says the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church; he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, when it says the husband is the head of the wife, this is not a, a matter of the husband being more important or more gifted in anything than the wife. This is a, simply an organizational structure. Somebody has to be the one finally responsible. Ultimately responsible. And God says the headship of the husband uh, is a, an established doctrine in the scriptures, and he's the one primarily responsible. Elsewhere, we see in the scripture that God holds fathers primarily responsible for what happens with the children. Here's a, an illustration of that from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, the Bible says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Eli was an Old Testament equivalent of what we would think of today as somebody in vocational Christian ministry. So think how sad this, this verse is. Uh, the sons of Eli were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. What a sad, sad uh, commentary. I'm trying to help you see that God holds fathers primarily responsible. Notice what happens in the next chapter. The scripture says, and the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel at this time was an intern serving under Eli. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. God held Eli primarily responsible for what happened with the children. Now, <clears throat> a, a tip that uh, I learned years ago before we had children is the value of viewing yourself as the father, that you men, to view yourself Um, as the one who's most responsible. You're the CEO and others are your assistant. Uh, In the church that Cindy and I attended before we had children, uh, that church had a family month every year and they would do teaching on husband-wife and parent-child relationships. And one of the speakers dealing with uh, parent-child relationships suggested that uh, men, that dads, view yourself as the CEO, the president and CEO of your particular company. So the application for me was, I am the president and CEO of Patton Incorporated. And at Patton Inc., what we're about is raising children who become long-term disciples of Jesus Christ, or the way Cindy and I put it back then, we prayed and asked God, help us to raise children that are champions for Christ. All right? And uh, I'm the president and CEO, but if you're the president and CEO of a company, I mean, you can't do everything by yourself. I mean, you need help, and what you need is a good executive VP. And uh, fortunately for me, um, I learned as we had children come along that Cindy is not only a wonderful wife, but uh, she's very, very gifted as a mother, and now she's a super grandmother. And I would just say to you, from a human perspective perspective, The good things that have happened with our children and with our grandchildren, just from a human perspective, are due more to Cindy's influence than to mine, which just goes to show what a great job I did in picking her as my executive (laughs) VP. So, but uh, Cindy and I realized, well, you know, you need more than a CEO and a VP. I mean, you got to have helpers. And she and I had both been significantly influenced in our lives by one of our grandparents. And so we know grandparents can have a profound influence on, on grandchildren. So we went to each of our set of parents and told them what our goals were and asked them to come alongside and help us. We asked them to, to do what, use their influence to help point our children toward becoming strong disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. But my parents lived seven hours away from where we were. Her parents were clear across the country out here in California from where we lived in, in Indiana at the time. And so we went to people in our church that were a bit older than us, who had children a bit older than our children, and, but they seemed to be doing well as a family. And their children were the kind of, uh, of young adults or teenagers that we would respect. And we had them into our home for a meal, and we interviewed the parents and the children, and, and then we invited the, the parents to speak into our lives, even though I was their pastor to to offer direction and admonition and warning and so forth. But we also gave them permission to speak into the lives of our children. And we asked them, join our team, please, and help point our children toward Christ and toward others. And uh, I would encourage you to do that. God holds faith. Dad, you're not the one who has to do it all. You can't do it all. But you are the one who is most responsible. And a good way of thinking about it is, I'm the CEO, I got to build a team here, they can get done what we're supposed to be doing at our house. One of the primary principles of fathering that needs to be emphasized in our culture is the importance of being there physically, being there mentally, and being there emotionally. And I would say to those of you who do biblical counseling, when you're doing parent-child counseling, be alert to those three areas. In my experience, this is one; of the, these are the most common failures on the part of fathers. They're not there physically, or when they are there, they're not mentally involved in the the child rearing, and they're not there emotionally. Dads, you're really important. Let me show you some things that underline the importance. 24 million children in America live in a fatherless home. 40% of students in grades 1 to 12 come from homes with no biological father in them. I think those help explain a lot of what's happening in our culture with our young adults, young children. Seventy-one percent of teenage pregnant mothers have no father in the home. Seventy percent of high school dropouts have no father present. And a child is four times more likely to dwell in poverty if there's no dad in the home. Dads, you're really, really important. But moms, you're to be involved. Uh, The scripture says this very clearly. Proverbs chapter 1 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. This is written by the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ. And he said, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Ladies put a star by this next point. While fathers have the greatest responsibility for the children, mothers frequently have the greatest influence. And if you're a mom raising kids without a godly father, leader, you're a single parent. Do not let that intimidate you from accomplishing the goal of bringing up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Uh, there are several notable characters in the in the scriptures who are raised by single parent um, single parent homes. Um, all right, let's move on. The tendency to avoid is do not provoke your children to anger. Now, when the Bible says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, this does not mean that you never upset, oppose, anger, or displease a child. I mean, if that's what it means, we're all in a heap of trouble as parents. It it doesn't mean that. It does mean that parents should avoid inciting a wrathful kind of living. In other words, don't stir them up to to live a life of anger and frustration. The warning is not about an incident of anger. It's about a lifestyle of anger. It is impossible to raise a child without the child getting angry on multiple occasions. That's not the issue. The issue is we don't want to turn out a child child like the kind of people spoken of in Proverbs over and over. In other words, avoid raising a child. Like the individual spoken of in Proverbs 19, verse 19, that says, A man of great anger will bear the penalty, for if you rescue him, you only have to do it again. In other words, a man of great anger will get himself into difficulty, and you may come along and get him out of that difficulty, but if he's a man of great anger, he'll just get himself in another jam. The scripture says, don't raise a child like that. Or Proverbs 22, 24, do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man. God is saying, don't raise a hot-tempered child. Or Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. God is saying to us, do not raise a child who does not have control over his spirit. Now, it's interesting. The Bible speaks primarily of two different kinds of anger. And if you've got your Bible there and you're open to Ephesians chapter 6, our key text, back up one page in most of your Bibles and look at Ephesians 4.31. In Ephesians 4.31, God lists six misbehaviors that he wants us to get rid of. And I want you to notice... uh, Notice this list. He says in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now look at number two in the list and look at number three in the list. He talks about wrath and anger. The, these are the two primary forms of anger that the Bible refers to regularly. Let me, let me help you uh, remember these two kinds. When the Bible talks about wrath, the word that's translated there is the Greek word thumos, and it refers to an explosive kind of anger. Here's how you can remember it. Picture in your mind a volcano, and then say the Greek word while you see the volcano exploding. Thumos! That's exactly what it is. Thumos is the kind of anger that when a person gets angry, they explode. God has designed us so that when we get angry, energy is generated, and a person who's given to thumos, when, they, when there's a thumos explosion, the energy generated by the anger goes outward and attacks people or things. All right. The other form of anger there in verse thirty-one, he says, "All wrath," and then the next word is anger. This is a different word. This is the Greek word orge. And uh, here's a way you can remember that. You might think about saying the word orge with some expression. Orge. Orge is the kind of anger where the energy generated by the anger is directed in toward oneself. And we have all kinds of phrases in our culture to talk about people who do this. We talk about people who seem to have a chip on their shoulder or people copping an attitude, or people who seem to get up on the wrong side of the bed every day, that's usually people who are given to or gay. And what God is saying to you and me as parents is, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. God is warning us, do not raise a child who goes out into the world, and their default response to not getting their way is to either explode and go off on other people, or to turn their anger and frustration in on themselves and be the kind of people who are miserable to live with. Don't do that. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Well, we've just been talking about biblical parenting, disciple-making in the home. Let me uh, show you a diagram that kind of captures a bit of what uh, we've been talking about and maybe put it in perspective. Uh, <clears throat> this is a diagram that I've drawn a lot of times in the counseling room for people. The goal of parenting is to bring the child up. We have to be goal-oriented. That starts from the time a child is born until they leave our home nest and we're no longer responsible for them. In the early years, the whole process of bringing the child up and getting them ready for the rest of life is done primarily through paideia, instruction with some kick in it. Boundaries and penalties for going beyond the boundaries. The goals are character development and preparing them to live in a world full of boundaries, but preparing them also to live in obedience to God who has boundaries for us. But it's not just that. The Bible also talks about the instruction of the Lord. And, uh, you know, two-year-old children can learn a lot. Kids are very, very bright. But just add 10, a 12-year-old can learn a lot more if they're willing to listen. They're willing to receive instruction. So it's either or But the goal is that we're going to raise children who will bring honor and glory to God by being the kind of people that he wants them to be. Now, as we close, I'm hoping that those of you who are parents will have received instruction that will help you to go back home and maybe have some very fruitful discussions with with your, your mate and about the children. I'm hoping those of you that are grandparents will have some good discussions about how can we be more strategic in influencing our children to be disciples of Christ. And for those of you that are child care or youth workers, think about the key role that you can have. Because some of you have a child's ear while that child is hardened to the input of their parents. And you can be a very strategic influence. And then for those of you that are not yet parents, I'm hoping that God has stirred in you and you find yourself thinking, by God's grace, I could be a part of that team to make that happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll use the preaching and teaching of your word to bring about lasting change in the lives of these individuals. I pray that every individual would leave today having been reminded about the richness of your word and the practicality of your word, and they would leave purposing in their heart to read their Bibles more, to study it better, and to seek to be more uh, completely, more fully the kind of parents that you want them to be. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.